Good morning. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, take my words this morning and speak through them. And take our thoughts and give us wisdom and insight. Think through them. And then take our hearts as a result and light them up with love for you and for your world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is our prayer. Amen. In 1964, a group of young British filmmakers had an idea. They said, let's get together a diverse group of children, all seven-year-olds, rich English toffs, young poor folks from the Cockney areas of London. Let's get a bunch of seven-year-olds together, and we'll begin to examine their lives, interview them, and ask them questions. The reason they chose seven as the age of the children is because there's a Jesuit maxim. Give me a child until he is seven, and I will give you the man. The idea being that our early years of development, what happens to us up to age seven, our education, our uh, cultural backgrounds, our family uh, dynamics, make a big difference in our future direction and purpose and destination in life. Well, since then, 1964, they've continued to make the same movie every seven years. The first movie was called Seven Up in 1964. Then, seven years later, they did 14 Up, 21 Up, etc. So the newest one that came out last year, and it's about to be released in the, in a, the United States, is called 56 Up. Now, I haven't seen the newest one, 56 Up, but I have seen 49 Up. And I've got to tell you, it's unlike any other documentary I've ever seen. What happens is you see the lives of these at one time children, now adults, play out over the years. And you see the, the dreams and the goals and the passion they had as little ones and what happens they grow older and some are married and divorced and go bankrupt and spend time in prison and suffer and have joy and just experience life. It is so poignant though because when you see the, the adults Often there's a split screen with the adult's picture and his or her version from seven years old. And you think, what, what would the seven-year-old say if they could see the adults today? What would, would they say, you're what I wanted to be or what happened or how'd you end up there? And of course, you can't watch a movie like that without applying the same question to yourself. And you say, I wonder what my seven-year-old version of myself would say to the adult version today. I wonder about you. What, where has your life ended up? Where are you? Who have you become? Who are you becoming? Is it what you dreamed about when you were a small child at age seven? We are studying the book of Revelation. We started last week with just an overview. One of the things we said about Revelation is that if you find it difficult, you are in good company. Revelation is a difficult book. For 2,000 years, folks have struggled with it. The early church was divided over whether to even include it in the scriptures or not. And one of the reasons Revelation is so difficult is because it has this dreamlike, visionary quality. In fact, from chapter 2 on, Revelation is a record of a vision that was given by God to a man named John. So he is trying to write in linear, specific words images and experiences that are perhaps almost beyond words. And that's one of the reasons we have so much trouble with it. Now, there's two sorts of people who are probably here today. One group of you, and I talked to one of you last week after church, one group of you are people who grew up with Revelation being beat over your head from your church background and your family background, and you didn't like it. It was used, frankly, to instill fear. It seems like that the only people who talk about Revelation are the crazy folks, and you don't want anything, to, anything like them. And so maybe you're here today with a little bit of trepidation, because Revelation to you 
is not a good topic. On the other hand, there's others of you here today, and you didn't grow up, this is probably my camp, you didn't grow up talking about Revelation in your home or in your church. And so you're interested in it just because you hear it in the culture and you know about all the crazy images and you want to dig into it. So if you're here today and you don't like all the crazy stuff and you don't want to be scared off, I have two things. Number one, I hope we never scare you off. But number two, today specifically will not be about the crazy stuff. But if you're here and you wish the crazy stuff was what we would talk about, just come back next week and we'll get there, okay? So I promise to disappoint or please half of you at any particular time. We're going to look today at the opening of John's vision. John sees Jesus in his vision. He's given a message to take to seven churches in what is modern-day Turkey, what was then called uh, the Roman province of Asia. These are seven important churches, and John has a message from Jesus for each one. We're going to look at the first one today, which is the letter and a message to the church in Ephesus. And the message to the church is essentially this. You're doing a good job, but I have this against you. You've forgotten the love you had at first, or as another translation puts it, you've forgotten your first love. See how far you have fallen. I'm wondering today if if you, as an individual, have forgotten your first love, or has life taken you somewhere that you didn't plan on going? And then I also wondered at larger, drawing out the camera a bit, for us as a congregation, are we the people that we set out to be as a church here called Munger Place Church? Or have we forgotten our first love? Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Let me pause right there. We know from last week that Revelation is filled with very strange images, most of which are not defined for us. But fortunately, at the very beginning of the book, a few of the images are defined in the vision itself. What we'll do then is we'll take what we know about images that are defined and try to use that knowledge to understand the images later in the book that are undefined so we get a sense of what's really happening here. But often in Revelation, we'll we'll say, it could be this, it could be that. We're not really sure. This is an example of that. The Greek word for angel is the same word for messenger, one who is sent. So when it says here, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, It could mean a couple of things. It could mean, and this is sort of a cool idea, that each individual congregation of the church has like its own guardian angel. Kind of a cool idea. Which makes sense because we've said before, the church is not just a human institution. It's God's idea and the Holy Spirit sustains it. But other people say, in this context, it probably makes more sense to think of the angel as being more like a messenger. and, And that's like the pastor or the leader of that particular congregation and as we'll see later that in my mind makes a little bit more sense here as we go down these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands we talked about this last week the seven stars are these angels of each church whatever exactly that means and the seven golden lampstands are the churches have you ever seen a jewish menorah hanukkah time and somebody's window or on somebody's front lawn. A seven golden lampstand was an ancient symbol of Judaism, and that's the symbol here that means churches. Now, sometimes when we can't decipher what the images mean, we still can pay attention to what exactly is happening in John's vision. In this case, we know who the seven stars are and the seven golden lampstands, but in any case, I want to draw your attention to what's happening. 
Jesus is speaking to John. He says, write this to the church in Ephesus. He says, I hold the seven angels in my right hand and I'm walking around the seven golden lampstands. Even if we weren't exactly sure what the lampstands or the stars are, it's very clear that the Lord is close to them. There's an intimacy there. We're not just the church far away from God. Our God is among us and with us and knows us intimately and knows our, our strengths and our weaknesses. As we get further on in the book of Revelation, one of the things we'll do is we'll look at the image and say, okay, even if we're not exactly sure what X equals, we at least get the general sense of the vision. God is close to his churches. Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is a letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus today is a city in ruins. You can go visit it in modern-day Turkey. But at the time of John's writing in the first century, it was perhaps the fourth greatest city in the Roman world behind Rome, Alexandria, and Syria, and Antioch. Ephesus was a great city. In fact, Ephesus was known as one of the sites of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Have you ever heard about that? Seven wonders of the world? It's from an ancient list, uh, list from an ancient writer who had a couple of things in there, and one of which was the temple to Artemis in Ephesus. A huge, glorious temple, marble and columns and a big plaza. An amazing thing. And it wasn't just a temple to Artemis, this Greek and Roman god, it was also a source of business. A lot of people made silver to use in their worship of Artemis and silver idols and other things. And it was a part of the local economy. What we know about Ephesus isn't just from the book of Revelation, it's also from part of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul goes to Ephesus and he begins ministry there. And the gospel just explodes and in fact a lot of the people that were doing, uh, were worshiping the false gods come and burn their stuff and begin to worship uh, the risen Lord. But this also causes a problem because the silversmiths and the other people who made money off the temple don't like it that their economy is being threatened. And they end up running some of the Christians out of town. This is the same church that receives this letter from John with a vision from the Lord to them. The problem with this church in Ephesus was not that they weren't standing firm. Jesus says, listen, I know your deeds. You're doing good stuff. The problem is something else. See, there's two ways churches get in trouble. On the one hand, sometimes churches don't hold fast to historic Christian doctrine. One of the reasons we spent the fall working through something called the Apostles' Creed, if you were here last week or recited it in worship, is because we want to make sure our roots are deep in the faith. We're not the first people to come to faith in Jesus. We don't create the faith. It's been handed on to us from the saints and the martyrs. We want to make sure we're in line with orthodox historic Christian teaching on things. It's not up to us to redefine the faith in the 21st century. We may have to tell it in new ways, but the truth is the same. Sometimes churches want to abandon the truth when it seems hard for people to believe. But there's another problem. Sometimes churches are really good with the doctrine. They have it right. But they find themselves in the situation of the church in Ephesus. It's not about what they know or say the right things. It's about loving the right way. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your perseverance, your hard work. 
You're doing a good job on that extent. But verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, if you continue in this conduct with right doctrine but without love, ultimately you're going to cease to be a church in any meaningful sense. Now you may meet on Sunday mornings, you may have a building, but you're not the church. God forbid that happens in this place. And I don't know how God evaluates churches. Uh, I'm not the Lord. But I've probably been around churches who were churches in name only, who, so to speak, had their lampstand removed. What about you? In fact, one of the reasons maybe you haven't been in church in a long time is that you'd been around those kind of churches and you said, I don't want to have anything like it. In fact, one of the things people often say about the church, maybe this is your concern if you're somebody who's kind of exploring the faith, they say, you know, I've read the New Testament, I like Jesus, even the parts I don't understand about the early church, I still overall like what the church was about. But boy, the modern church, it seems institutional. and It seems to care about institutional maintenance and preserving its own power and prestige. It seems to be about money and control. And if that's what you're thinking, and you think, I don't want any part of it, you're in good company. Because neither does Jesus. Consider how far you've fallen, he says. But remember the love you had at first. Remember your first love. Now, i got to tell you, I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook account. But I don't totally understand it. I'll just be honest with you. Now, I didn't grow up with Facebook. In fact, the only reason my wife and I are on Facebook, we were adults when Facebook came out and were living and hadn't been in college, is because one of my brothers was dating a girl, and we wanted to get on Facebook to see the pictures of her. (laughs) Yeah, you guys. As if you don't do the exact same thing. Don't Don't even try But one of the really strange things about Facebook, for those of us who are older and didn't have it when we were in school, is how basically now, look, there's a a billion users of Facebook, how people want to be your friends that you haven't seen in years and years and years, and in some cases you've never seen. I have people who want to be my friends who are from elementary school or other things. Has this happened to you? A couple years back, I was in seminary, about to, we're about to begin uh, the congregation here at Munger. And I got a Facebook message from a friend of mine from school whom I hadn't talked to for years and hadn't been particularly close with. And he gave me his phone number and we talked on the phone. We caught up and he asked me what I was doing. And I told him, I was in seminary and I'm going to be a pastor, going to start this congregation, be a part of this team starting this congregation. And he, he said, uh, wow, I thought you'd be doing something more impressive than that. Which I appreciated. I appreciated his candor. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, every now and then I think about that and I think, yeah. Ah. I wonder what, I wonder how that might be true with your life, you know. Did you have people who knew you at one time and then you ended up someplace else? Did you have certain plans? I'm not really talking about career stuff. Uh, Ultimately, as we'll see as the revelation goes on, that kind of external stuff is really not that important. I don't really care if you're planning on being a this and now you're a that. that. Those things 
God can use things in different ways. I'm more thinking about your first love, the sense of who you wanted to be. Probably if you're here today and you're a church person, you're a believer, you're a Christian, there was some moment or season in your life. Maybe it was uh, a wedding. Maybe it was when you held your child for the first time. Maybe there was a summer camp. Maybe there was a period when something happened, somebody was sick and got well. Maybe it was being with a certain family member. I'm not sure when it was. But I bet you had your own revelation or apocalypse. As we talked about last week, those words just mean a revealing and unveiling. I bet there was a moment in your life, it was watching a movie, attending a concert, reading a novel, in which somehow the true state of life was made clear to you. You realized how good God is and the passion of his love for his creation. And you said, I want to be filled with that love. I want to be set on fire for it. Lord, I know I'm greedy, but I want to be someone who's generous. I know I'm fearful, but I want to be somebody who exercises courage. Now think back to that moment or that season. I don't know if that was a year ago, 10 years ago, when you were first confirmed, when you were baptized, when you first joined a church, when you first joined this church. Can I encourage you to remember your first love? Are you the kind of person today that that person would have said, you got it right, buddy. Let's take it even larger than that, though. Let's talk about the congregation. Because, of course, Revelation is not so much at individuals, this letter in chapter 2, as it is towards a congregation of people like us. I remember when we had our first kind of vision meeting about what we wanted the new Munger place to be. We were in the old church before it was renovated, no heating, no air. We were down front. Kate did some songs. Paul Rasmussen, Paul Rasmussen was here. I was here. We talked about what we want this church to be about. And one of the things we said, we wanted to be a church for outsiders. Which is actually what you have to say when you start a new church. Because you don't have any people. <laughs> and we sort of shared that vision. And some of you were here that day and you said, that's what I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a church that thinks of others before itself. I want to be part of a church that cares for its neighborhood more than it cares for itself. Jesus says, greater love has no one than one who lays down his life for his friends. We want to be part of that type of church. And I think for a while, and at times, we've been like that. But you know what happens? It happens in any human life, any institution. Over time, you drift from your original purpose. And we were ruthless about being focused on outsiders at the beginning, but over time, perhaps... Have we become more insider-focused? Have we become more about ourselves? Have I become somebody who's more about my convenience, what makes me comfortable, than about the people who aren't here? Wise people have said the church is the only institution on earth that exists for the others who aren't members of it. Could Jesus be speaking to us through the book of Revelation in the letter to the church of Ephesus saying, you're doing good stuff. The coffee tastes good. The temperature is right. The music is good. Your website looks nice. But have you forgotten your first love? Consider the heights from which you have fallen. Have you, have you made it more about yourselves and less about others? I find this very convicting because if I'm honest with you, a lot of my ministry and a lot of my personal life is very selfishly focused. 
But remember your first love. The Lord tells the church in Ephesus, repent and turn back, come back the other way. I wanted to preach on this passage specifically today because we're accepting new members. And one of the things we've said around here, we want membership. It's not like joining a country club. Nothing that, not that there's anything wrong with that, but here at the church, the church doesn't exist to serve its members. The members of the church exist to serve the world. I wanted to remind our new members and our current members about what we're trying to be about. I wanted to remind myself, I hear what you're saying, the Lord said. You're doing good stuff, but don't forget the love you had at first. Don't forget your original purpose to care about the world, to care about the people who aren't here. You know how that manifests itself? In small ways, it says, if I'm having a seat in a church that I like, but somebody else comes and needs that seat, I'll give them that seat. It means I'm going to not take the best spot for myself because I want to make it easier for new visitors and new guests to come and park. It means I'm going to share from my wealth for people who don't have, even if they don't come here. And you know, if there was ever a congregation that should be generous, it's this one because of our history and how we started. Folks at our parent church, Highland Park Methodist, gave up to their eyeballs to allow, to allow you and me to be here today. Remember the love you had at first. Remember your first love is what the Lord says. Now, the truth is, though, that it's not just about what we loved first, it's also about who first loved us. It has a double meaning. Remember your first love. I don't want us today just to remember how maybe we wanted to be or used to be, both in our lives as individuals and our lives as a congregation. I want, us to rem- rem- I want us also to remember our first love, the one who first loved us. 1 John chapter 4 says, we love before God because God first loved us. When Jesus says, this is what love is like to lay down your lives for your friends, he wasn't talking abstractly, he was talking personally because he proved it. The Ephesian church was started out of the overwhelming love of God for his world. God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for it, that through him people could be saved. Our first love is what compels us to love others. The love of God meets us right where we are today. The good news for you today, particularly if your life is not where the seven-year-old version of you wanted it to be, the good news is you don't have to fix it to have God love you first. In fact, the message of the gospel is the exact opposite. God loves first, and then our lives change, and subsequently we love others. That means as a church, we don't love people who deserve it. We love particularly those who don't deserve it. As a church, we care about the Dallas ISD schools even if we don't have kids in the school. Even if the parents of those kids and those children are never going to come to our church, we care about them because God first loved us, showed grace to us, and we are compelled to share it with others. Rather than retreating and worrying about problems and messes and dark places, we're People who, because God first loved us, we go right to the messes, right to the uncomfortable situations, right right to where things are messy and not neat, because God first loved us. Remember your first love. There's all these different characters in this, these up series of movies, but one who sticks out in my mind is one named Neil. 
Now, again, I haven't seen the most recent version, but I've seen 49 up. And you see the sad arc of his life. He's a very promising, obviously brilliant young boy from the north, working class England. When you see him as a seven-year-old, you just see God's light working through him the way that you can see in small, bright children who haven't yet been hurt by the world. But then over time, you see his life change. He clearly deals with depression. He's homeless for a while, unwashed, without purpose. And in the middle decades of his life, he seems like a lost life. But then he encounters the church and begins part of, become part of a community of faith. And his life changes and he has purpose and direction and joy. And the great thing about God's message to the church of Ephesus is that it is a message based on grace. Remember your first love. I come to you first. So today, the message of John to us is on the one hand, remember what you wanted to be about. Let's not be a church about ourselves, but about others. But let's also extend the message of grace to whoever needs to hear it to say, regardless of what kind of mistakes you've made in your life, the grace of God comes to you first. And then subsequently, we can change. My prayer for us as a church is that we would be Reminded constantly by these words in Ephesus and that whether we have 400 people, 4,000 people, $4 million, no money, regardless of how God blesses us, we'd be a church that remembers that what God has done for us is to give up his only son for us and therefore be a church that lays down our lives for an undeserving, hurting, desperate world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may God make it true in us today. Amen.